biggest challenges facing producers of specialty crops is labor. Today, we explore what that challenge looks like for one family farm. This winter, we will prune every tree on the farm by hand. And then next summer, we will thin every apple tree by hand. And then we will pick every apple tree and cherry tree by hand. So that's where our labor cost equals about 75% of our budget. Mike and April Clayton grow apples and cherries on about 150 acres. At the end of the season, they sometimes have to consider if it even makes economic sense to pay to harvest some of their trees. Everyone comes and they're like, oh, we love them, we love them, we'll take them. But, you know, we don't have a large acres, but we still produce half a million pounds of cherries. That's not enough to be sold through a farmer's market. That unfortunately has to go to a packing shed. Producers of these labor-intensive fresh market crops deal with a whole different set of challenges than their commodity row crop contemporaries. We have a lot of neighbors who are dryland wheat farmers, and you know they'll run five, ten thousand acres of land with two or three people, and so I get a little bit of jealous sometimes, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's just not going to work for what we do. We're talking agricultural labor with Mike and April Clayton of Red Apple Orchard in Washington State on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for today's episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. And before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to take just a minute to thank our sponsor for this fourth quarter of 2022, and that is Sound Agriculture. Many of you listening will be familiar with Sound Ag from when we featured CEO Adam Lytle on the show back in January, and it's a great time to talk about their source product, because just about everywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high, and in some cases, the availability itself has been a problem this year. So finding a better source of crop nutrients going forward is on the top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nutrients already in your fields so you can apply less fertilizer while still getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to sort of wake up the soil, kind of like caffeine for microbes. Visit sound.ag to learn more. And thank you so much to Sound Agriculture for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now back to today's episode. I have been following April Clayton on Twitter for quite a while now. She's at AppleApril111, if you are a Twitter person. And she puts out some great content there about her life and work at Red Apple Orchard, where they grow organic apples and conventional cherries. She also happens to have a PhD in analytical chemistry from my alma mater, UC Davis. So she's technically Dr. April Clayton. Her and her husband, Mike, are the second generation on their Washington fruit orchard. A recent Twitter exchange with April is actually what prompted me to reach out to her for today's episode. Uh, She had shared a video of a block of organic apples that she said they were considering not harvesting at all due, at least in part, to the labor situation. And I wondered, you know, just how expensive does labor have to be to make it not worth it to even harvest some certified organic fruit? Or was it that 
the labor was simply just like non-existent in her area? Or were there other factors at play here that I just kind of wasn't aware of? I also wondered if this meant that the futuristic looking robotic apple pickers that so many of us have seen the demo videos of might actually be close to being a real option for growers like the Claytons. Now, these are all the types of questions that you're going to hear on today's episode, and I really enjoyed the perspective from April and Mike. Uh, these types of conversations with farmers are really what help to provide the depth and, and nuance and complexity to a big issue like farm labor. So I think it's really important, even though you are hearing just one family farmer's experience, um, I think today's episode will give you a much better understanding of what we say when we say labor is an issue. Now, depending on where you're from, 150 acres may not sound like much, but have a listen to Mike describing the amount of people it takes to keep an orchard of this size running. We have seven families that live on the farm year round, and we employ at a minimum 12 to 14 year round. But during the harvest and the summer work, we go up to sometimes 50, 60, 70 employees. So cherry harvest tends to be a sprint. We have about 65 acres we have to get through in one month where apple harvest, we have three months to go through about 80 acres. So it's a much slower pace. It, we don't need as many people. And that's where a lot of the loss of getting our produce to market comes from. Many years, especially when we were organic, we'd have to look at our cherry blocks. Okay, we only have X number of people. We don't have time and we can't afford to go through the Rainier block. So we're going to leave the Rainier cherries and go do everything else. So skipping fruit blocks that may not be as profitable as others, unfortunately, happens quite frequently in the tree fruit industry. Hmm. Man, there's nothing better than a Rainier cherry. I didn't realize you guys grew those. When I see them at the store, I cannot resist. I load up. They're so delicious. Um, so the 12 to 14 full-time employees, once harvest hits... Does everybody pretty much shift gears and focus just on, on harvest? Our farm is big enough that we've learned we have to keep farming while we're harvesting. So we try to have one or two guys taking care of the mowing or the weed control. But for the most part, everybody's... All hands on deck. All hands on deck for harvest. And then this winter, we will prune every tree on the farm by hand. And then next summer, we will thin every apple tree by hand. And then we will pick every apple tree and cherry tree by hand. So that's where our labor cost equals about 75% of our budget. Wow. And, you know, when you think of harvest, you think about the people actually picking the fruit. What other jobs are unique to harvest that, that kind of need to be done during the harvest time? Well, we run some equipment. Um, we run a tractor with a hydraulic trailer on the front that hauls about 4,000 pounds of fruit. And so that can be kind of tricky because we have a bunch of hillsides and, and we're not all on flat ground. And also our sprayers in the cherries are large sprayers and it takes a very seasoned equipment operator to be able to safely do that job. Give us a sense of how much can someone who's actually hand harvesting, how much can they get done in a day? What is reasonable to expect someone to get done in harvest? 
So for me, um, an apple harvest at Apple Ben, it holds approximately 800 to 900 pounds of apples. It takes me about three hours to fill a bin. And it can take some of our skilled crew uh, two hours for an apple bin. Our good pickers can pick about four and a half thousand pounds of fruit a day. And uh, th there is a range there. Some people just naturally aren't as fast as others, but that's about average. We also have a migrant system that works in play too. We have a crew that comes up from California outside of Davis every year, Woodland, um, and basically they follow the cherry harvest. And every year we're lucky enough that they come back to us. And then after cherry harvest is over, they'll continue on up through Canada. And how long have you worked with that same crew? Oh, over 10, 10 years. years. Yeah. Been a while now. And between your full-time employees and that crew, are you able to get all the cherries harvested just with those people? We have been able to, but every year for the last 10 years, labor has been short. So it's a challenge because the big corporations that we farm next to tend to pull a lot of people in. When they need workers, they raise their rates and they suck a lot of people from us. So it gets to be a challenge for the smaller growers to pay a competitive price to keep their people. And here in Washington State, we have a 30,000 um, labor deficit every harvest season. So um, it's very critical labor here. And if it wasn't for the H-2A system, I mean, even though we don't use the H-2A system, if it wasn't here, we would not have enough people to harvest the fruit in Washington State. And what are the reasons that the H-2A system isn't a fit for you? Um, it's very expensive. You have to pay to fly the guys up from Mexico and fly them home. You have to guarantee them a certain amount of work. And if you don't have that much work, you have to pay it anyways. And also the minimum wage for H-2A is higher. And good old Washington State, they've got a rule that says if you start paying H-2A wage, even your non-H-2A workers have to be brought up to that same wage. We actually looked into H-2A several years ago, um, back in 2016. We actually built H-2A housing here on the farm. Unfortunately, there was um, a water monitorium happening in our state, so we couldn't drill the well. That actually took about a year and a half. And once we got that well built, it was about six months to complete the housing well, two years later, we go back and they've changed the housing regulations for the H-2A housing. And so this 16-person unit that we bought now only could hold 12 people. So we have never been able to use the H-2A because it was no longer cost efficient per bed to use that housing for H-2A. Yeah, I think this is something that admittedly, I think I've only learned lately, which is you know, the intentions, the positive intentions of trying to make a better life for farm labor are good, but it seems like they disproportionately hurt smaller growers. Is that true? It's very true. And they also hurt the worker as well. Currently, we have um, agriculture overtime we have to start paying. And these migrant workers that are coming up from California, they're not here to work just 40 hours a week. They're here to work as much as they can and then go back home. Well, we already have an inflated rate for harvest to attract these workers here. So we can't afford that inflated harvest rate and plus overtime on top of that. And these agriculture workers, like I said, they're not here for a vacation. <laughs> they're here to work. So that tends to be very hurtful. And also with the housing units, um, 
the people who make a lot of these housing regulations, they have never actually come out to see what the housing looks like. You know, they send inspectors out, but there can be a lack of communication there as well. And it's very hard for the farmers like us. And another thing I would add is that my foreman's been here for over 40 years. Our irrigator's been here for over 30 years. And these are the really valuable people on the farm. They know the jobs. They don't have to be trained. When the minimum wage is jacked up and we have to pay a brand new person that doesn't have any skills the same amount as someone who's been doing it for 10 years, it winds up taking away some of the premium from those full-time workers who are at our farm year-round so that we can pay what we have to pay by law to the temporary migrant workers. So in addition then to those full-time employees uh, that obviously with their longevity, they're well taken care of because they're, they're sticking around and thriving there. And then you've got this crew that's been with you a long time coming through to pick the cherries. Where do you make up the difference uh, for apples? Because it sounds like they're, they're more focused on cherries, that crew that comes from Woodland. Where do you make up the difference in labor from apples? How do you find people for that without H2A? We've developed a list of good workers that we like to work with. And our farm tends to be smaller, high-density trees, which are easier to pick. And so uh, we basically call around to the contacts that we've developed and try to pull as many as we need. And like I said before, with you know the apples being a marathon, you have a little bit more time to get the apple off the tree than you do the cherry. So if you don't have a full crew, it's okay because you can pick that block in a week versus two days. Yeah, that makes sense. So that, that is helpful. I was struck April when I saw on Twitter that you have some organic apples that in a worst case scenario, it comes down to a decision of like, do we even pick these? Uh, and I've heard of that happening in other crops, but I just think of organic apples as a super premium product that, you know, probably was pretty expensive to get to that point. Walk us through that decision of, of looking at a block of apples and wondering whether you should try to pick them or not. Um, so this is a great year for an example to speak of. We in Washington State, we had a really cold spring. So even the fruit that did get pollinized, there was a lot of russet. There was a lot of scarring that was on the apples. Um, as we like to say, we grow apples, but we harvest diamonds. Those apples have to be perfect and they have to be beautiful. And grocery stores all would like for our apples to be the same uniform size. They don't like our apples if they get too big or if they get too small. So if we have a block that isn't red enough yet, has too many scars, too many bruises from wind banging the apple against the branch, we'll have to skip it because there's just too much damage. And a call is a call in the industry. It doesn't matter if it's organic or if it's conventional. And that happens at the packer. So it leaves the farm to the packer. They decide, they tell you, hey, guess what? Um, you know, 10% of the apples I got from you were coals. And so you're just not getting paid for them. They would tell us we had a 90% pack out. So another uh, thing that we have to watch out too with the crews that come through, um, it's a skilled labor picking apples. If they, you know, pick the apple and they pick it wrong, they could take next year's bud. Or if they don't get the stem, that goes to be a cull. Also, if you grab the apple too tightly, uh, you can bruise the apple and those will get thrown out as well. So it is a skilled labor and you can't, you know, just drop the apple into the bag. You have to place it to prevent bruising. So it is gentle, but it has to be going fast. I was going to add that we do uh, do some sorting in the field during harvest. 
anything that's obvious, like a bird peck or a big rotten piece of fruit, they're supposed to throw it on the ground. If we wind up having a lot of damage to a block, then we will pay extra to get it picked and to try to encourage them to sort more. But it's very expensive for us to sort in the field. It's kind of a balance on how much you can afford to put into it. So we're a smaller grower. We can't afford this. But larger outfits will have, um, you talked about different jobs on during harvest. One is crew boss. Another one is a sorter. Uh, we can't afford this. Someone sits literally at the bins and sorts out and throws the bad apples out right there in the field. Um, we also have people, you know, running the bins back. And you have people loading the bins into the reefer. So it's... It's a lot of different moving parts all at once. It's not just the person sitting there in the tree picking. Yeah. I want to get back to something you guys alluded to, which is you're surrounded by much larger operations that can spread that cost over a lot more acreage, right? And so when you're trying to get the labor for the apple specifically, because we kind of talked about how the labor works for cherries, you're calling and, and are you hearing back like, hey, look, I can go two miles down the road and, and get more money. So I'm just going to do that. I mean, is that is that the challenge there? Yes, it is. We pretty much know where our neighbors are at and where we're at on pricing. And uh, sometimes we can still keep a crew, even though we're not the highest price in the neighborhood, because they're used to working for us and they like being here. And also um, another way, you know, piece rate, you know, we pay based on how much fruit you pick. And sometimes with our spacing, our high density trees, which we hope for one day have a mechanical picker go through, it's much easier and quicker for a crew to go through and pick. So sometimes they'll pick us just because of how we have our trees grown. They know they can get the fruit off quicker and they know they can make more money. And is that the reason that you you went with the high density orchard is because that's a possibility or, or for harvestability, I guess, in general, or is it more just kind of yield per acre, some combination? It's a little bit too prong. Um, one reason why we do the high density is because we're basically growing a wall of fruit, which does make it easier for harvest and for possible mechanical pickers. But also you get to production much quicker. If you were to do the old fashioned style with the four big branches, you're taking time to grow those branches to where we think of each stick in the ground as a branch that we're growing. So more production faster. The difference is, is at a high density, we're planting 3,630 trees per acre to where the traditional planning was down around 180 per acre. <laughs> That's a huge difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's so expensive to plant an orchard nowadays that we need to start recouping that cost right away. We can't wait five or six years. And with the high density, they'll start bearing fruit earlier? Sometimes in the second year and uh, almost all of them in the third year. Okay. Wow. So, you know, back to kind of the decision to not harvest. I know you mentioned the coals. And so if you're looking out at a block and you're saying like, look, we're going to get a lot of coals from this because of the weather conditions that we had this year unexpectedly, then you're trying to see like, okay, well, how much fruit can be salvaged from this and how much is it going to cost to harvest it? Is that kind of how that goes? Yes. And we also uh, work with Treetop Incorporated, who is a processor. They make apple juice and apple sauce and I'm a customer. Food. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. And so we do, if we can't get it to the fresh pack, then we can pick it for the processor. It's not nearly as much money. It's less than half, but it does help us recover a bunch of our cost. So this year, that's what we did. We knew we would have a lot of frost damage, especially in our softer fruits like 
Galas and Honeycrisp. So we went ahead and made that decision to send it to processor. And because we're organic, we do pretty good with the processor. It's significantly more than conventional. Gotcha. So it's kind of a sunk cost deal where it's like, okay, the money I spent to get the orchard to this point, it's spent, it's there, uh, but there's nothing I can do about that now. So now I just need to look at cost of harvest versus what I'm going to get out of it. And it's got to be hard to look at fruit on trees and not harvest them. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Especially the cherries. That's when it breaks your heart because everyone comes and they're like, oh, we love them. We love them. We'll take them. But, you know, we don't have a large acres, but we still produce half a million pounds of cherries. That's not enough to be sold through a farmer's market. That unfortunately has to go to a pecking shed or even to a fruit bank. I mean, you know, most food banks can't take that much food volume either. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. This is another question I was going to ask you, you know, if there was some sort of like gleaning service that says we'll show up with bus loads of people. I've already heard a couple of reasons for me why that may not be a great idea. For example, like not knowing how to pick uh, without damaging the tree. Uh, but also I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around the scale of a commercial orchard and how much fruit that really is. Is that right? That's a hundred percent right. I have friends all the time volunteering, you know, I'll come up and pick those apples. I'm like, sure, be my guest. A half an hour later, they have their bag, they're out, you know, and they didn't even get through a whole tree. You know, they just don't understand the volume. And with a lot of the gleaming services, it is they're not a hundred percent, you know, up to speed on how to not damage the tree. But, you know, this is a living orchard. So we have moles, we have apples on the ground. So there is a big liability if you twist your ankle or something like that. And plus a lot of the cherry trees, you have to climb up a ladder. And again, that's more liability. Um, for our crew, we do a lot of training, you know, how to hold the ladder, how to, you know, effectively put the ladder on the ground. These are a lot of things we have to do anyways through Global Gap, our third party independent safety verification. But these are training that a lot of people who do the second gleaming don't have. So it could come back and hurt us in the end. Yeah. So Global Gap, they do safety training for farms. Is that right? No, they are a third party independent um, safety training. So if we sell our fruit to a shed and that shed wants to take our fruit, say, to Canada or another country, we have to be verified um, by a third independent party. Okay. That your workers are safe. Yes. Yeah, so they just make sure that we're doing the training and we have the sanitation and we, you know, we're growing healthy fruit without any kind of contaminants in there. No, one thing I did want to talk about real quick, because you were surprised about the amount of waste that happens in organic. Um, another thing that happens is if you farm next to a conventional orchard, if there isn't a large enough buffer between your organic orchard and a conventional orchard, those outside rows will have to be picked as conventional or thrown away. Oh, wow. How do you determine that? Is there like a specific buffer? Like it needs to be so yes, far yes. apart? It, yes. It used to be 25 foot buffer. Now they've kind of changed it to where we're supposed to tell them if we're worried about drift on these trees, then we can't pick them organically. If the wind always blows away from us and the neighbor doesn't drift on us, then we say, no, we don't get any drift. You know, we pick those organically. But generally um, in the past when it was the set 25 foot boundary, um, we would have to throw those away because there wasn't enough of them to make a load to go to conventional market. You have to have enough fruit for the packing shed to be like, okay, it makes sense for us to process this. A small few bins of conventional fruit isn't worth a shed's time. 
Wow. That's uh, the, either the second or third time you've talked about sort of like how the rules of the game have sort of changed, right? I mean, the regulations on labor have changed. The, the regulations on organic have changed. But you all, you don't, you plant an orchard and you can't just change, right? I mean, you've planted that orchard. It's a, it's a decades long commitment, I would imagine, even in high density environment. Um, does that keep you up at night? Yes. <laughs> it's hard to move around, you know, you can't move a tree. It's stuck where it's stuck. So, and there is a lot like to become an organic grower, you have to wait three years growing organically before you can get to the market organically. And it does because there's a lot of things that you just can't control and it's tough. And is that part of the reason why you, you stick it out with organic, even when the premiums aren't there? Yeah, that's one of the reasons because it would be so expensive to get back into it. If it's just going to be down for a few years, then we'll suffer the cost so that when it comes back, we're still certified organically and we get that premium. Well, you know, back on the on labor topic specifically, what do you think, you know, the, the long-term answer is, you know, to the labor challenges that you all have to face? It sounds like you're in, you're out for the better part of a decade. Automation is definitely the way. Um, 75% of our cost is labor. So if we can get that cost down because our premiums are shrinking, it's going to be through automation. Um, there are several different uh, automated pickers out there. The robotics that actually pick, vacuum that come and suck. There is a hybrid of platforms with automation, but it still requires pickers. And there's some other great innovations too. A few years ago, we bought a string machine in hopes that it would help thin the apple blossoms off the tree. So we're always looking at ways to help reduce the cost and that's through automation. Tell me about the, the thinning of the apple blossoms. So what's, what are you doing there and what's the machine? Well, uh, we don't do it now. It didn't really work out, yeah. but the, the trial was this had a, a vertical spinner that had like a weed eater uh, string coming off it and it would spin as we drove down the side of the tree row and it would knock off some of the bloom and leave some of the bloom. So when you're in an apple orchard, a spur has five blooms. It has five different chances to become an apple. But as an apple grower, we only want one of those blooms to become an apple. So after we think the bees have come in there and pollinated the king, that one apple bloom, we'll send the we tried to send the sting machine through to knock off those other blooms. Um, you can do it chemically with the lime sulfur that we talked about before, but most traditionally and what almost everyone does is you go through and hand thin. Once those apples start to show and they're really small, you go through and you pick them off to where there's only one per spur. The reason we do that is same reason why most people who grow apples in their backyard grow really tiny little apples. <laughs> Because we can't make money on that. So we have to knock those five flowers down to one so it's big and pretty. Yeah, you grow tiny apples and you only get a crop every two years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know all about that. <laughs> yeah. And so did the, the machine, did it knock off too many of the blooms or not enough? Or was there another issue that it didn't work out? It just didn't give us the results we wanted. We were trying to do it to get bigger fruit and it did not add anything to our fruit size and so you have to go back to do that by hand is that part of your crew of 12 to 14 people that are doing all that work or you bring in outside the help for that we bring in outside we'll have 20 to 30 people for thinning okay wow that's a lot of work um 
you know, on on the automation, you mentioned the hybrid where it's like a combination of crew and technology. That to me would seem like a good step in the right direction and maybe a lot more attainable than some of these, like the idea of some sort of fully autonomous harvester. You know, is is that kind of what's shaping up or how are you looking at that and how do you keep up with what's happening there? So with that, it is a great technology. Um, we are trying to keep on top of it. Right now, it's not exactly cost effective for our orchard because you still have to have someone driving the tractor and then you have the people on the platform that are picking and then there's a machine that is gently putting these apples that they pick into a bin and then the bin's coming off. It still takes about the same number of people as you would just picking. So you don't, you're not decreasing your labor force yet with that one. So for us, it's not quite there in terms of what we need, but it is definitely something that we are looking forward to and it's something we're keeping our eyes on. Platforms are used basically instead of using a ladder, you have someone driving a platform through so they can work the top half of the orchard while someone's down on the ground walking the bottom half of the orchard. And you, do you use the platforms now or no, not yet? No, we don't. We've tried it. And for our particular orchards, it's no less expensive than hand thinning or hand picking. Also, again, we have some hills in our orchard and most of these automated or platform machines aren't built to go up and down hills. You just got to go really fast on the downhill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can imagine someone on a platform on a hill sideways and the platform's tilting sideways. That is, you know, liability and L&I all over the place. That's something you don't think of unless you actually go out to an orchard and test this stuff, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, what gives you hope that these technological solutions, even though they're not here now, are going to get there? Is it just because the costs keep rising or is there other things that give you hope? I would say it's the costs are rising and the big corporate farms are expanding tremendously. Oh, yes. And so I think they're going to push the technology. Four or five years ago, we thought we were three years off of an automated picker. And unfortunately, we still haven't seen one. But our thought is that these big corporations are going to push the research to get those machines to work. And just in our area alone, we have Goldman Sachs, Bill Gates. There's four or five very large investors who traditionally don't have anything to do with agriculture who have sunk money into orchards around us because their thought is even if the orchard doesn't make money, the land will add value every year. Right. So, you know, if there are, and, and I can tell you there probably are, if there are some of these people who work at these harvest automation companies, you know, what do you wish they knew or better understood, you know, about you all as prospective customers and, and your needs? I think they have a pretty good grasp on it. It's just getting it here quickly, um, you know, making it affordable for us. Um, I did see one company, I can't remember the name of it, instead of outright selling their automated pickers, they were going to rent them on a per bin basis. For every bin that automated pick, that's what you'd pay them for. And that seems a little bit more like something we, the smaller grower, can jump into. Unfortunately, right now for us, when these bigger companies want to test out their equipment, they want to go test it out on a thousand acres, not 80 acres here. So I completely understand that. But I do wish that it would make it more available and convenient for a smaller grower like us. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and for you all, you know, is there any concern with technology, you know, having the people on staff full time that can actually operate and maintain and kind of keep this technology going? Because it is it looks really complex when you watch the videos of it, at least it looks like something that 
it takes some serious expertise to maintain. Yeah, the, the labor market is very tight all over the place, especially when it comes to trained equipment operators on a farm. We normally have four professionals, I would call them, equipment operators. And this season, we've only had two all year. We've been trying to hire a third for a year. We've got a house available, good benefits and wage, and we just haven't been able to find anybody. So they're getting fewer and far between, it seems like. And also for us, orchardist farmers in general, you kind of have to be a little bit of jack of all trades. So, you know, the mechanics of it doesn't really scare me. What I'm a little more concerned about is the technology part of it. You know, Wi-Fi, does it need to be connected? Because a lot of these rural areas, especially our hillsides, they don't always have Wi-Fi accessibility because we've seen a automatic picker come through and the GPS got messed up and it ended up running over the trees instead of picking them. Oh, man. Yeah, those stakes are really high. It's not like a Midwest row crop. You can't just like lose a couple trees. Well, uh, what about for you all? Obviously, you're running a business. You want your business to, to continue to thrive. Do you have ambitions to grow so that you can spread some of this cost over more acreage? Or, you know, what's, uh, what's on your mind as far as what comes next for your orchard? The one thing about expansion is when you expand, you have to increase labor. So for us right now, that's my hem and haw over it. Um, you know, our niche used to be organic until 2016. So it's trying to find that new niche. Is it a different variety that's going to carry you through to get more money? Or, you know, is it going to be something other than organic? You know, is regenerative going to come and be a player? Man, well, I mean, it's, it's a challenging and complex issue. But the end result that I think a lot of people don't realize and need to realize is if if the conditions get harder and harder for you all to stay in business and you eventually you aren't in business anymore, that production is going to happen elsewhere where there aren't any standards at all, right? That's right. exactly right. We are heavily dependent on the workers from Mexico and they are excellent workers and they do the job and uh, we would not be able to farm if we didn't have that source of labor. Every once in a while, we'll get somebody, you know, local that wants to try working on a farm and We'll put them up and usually they work half a day and leave. And it's not because, you know, the H2A, the guest worker program affords us cheap labor because it's not cheap. It's labor. I don't think people realize I hear a lot on social media. Oh, you just want, you know, cheap Mexican labor. Well, it's not cheap. You know, we have a 30,000 labor deficit, you know, for them, it's a bit of a, you know, a great market because if they don't like, I mean, literally we will have crews, people come through and walk through the orchard to see if they want to stay and work for us and pick our apples, or do they want to go to another orchard that has better fruit growing and a better ability to pick? Well, you know, I, I think definitely an interesting point that you all have made is how the smaller grower is affected by a lot of these things rather than larger grower. And it would seem to me that many of these factors are just pushing smaller farmers out and getting gobbled up by these uh, larger investors and larger corporate farms. Are you still seeing that today? Yes, for sure. The price of orchards is at an all-time high. Um, in our neighborhood, they're starting to go for around $40,000 an acre, and then usually they need to be replanted. And so this has driven us out of the market of purchasing more land. Um, we did expand a lot after the mid-1990s, 
and uh, we were able to pick up some neighbors who got out of the business. But right now, in order to expand your farm, you're going to be bidding against these big corporations to get that land. And I don't see us buying any more farmland, to be honest with you. Yeah. And also the orchards around us that are being ripped out, half of them are going to developers as well. We live about, as the crow flies, five miles from the Columbia River, about 20 miles from Lake Chelan, which is a popular destination resort for Seattle. So a lot of the orchard land is now being pushed into development. That small farmer like us is either getting bought out by a big corporation or by a developer, and now we're seeing homes going in on those orchard lands. Well, do you ever think of, I mean, when you run into these labor challenges, do you ever think like, can't we find a, a low labor crop? You know, I mean, obviously you're not, it's hard to make $40,000 an acre work, you know, on pretty much any, any other crop. But I mean, do you ever consider like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe hazelnuts, that was, that's a little easier on us. You know, do you, does that thought go through your head? And if so, uh, why don't you go down that road? Uh, it does. We have a lot of neighbors who are dry land wheat farmers. And, you know, they'll run five, 10,000 acres of land with two or three people um, because it's all machine planted, they machine combine. harvest. And so I get a little bit of jealous sometimes, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's just not going to work for what we do. I mean, even if we were just, you know, transverse to a different type of tree, it's still growing a tree that you have to prune every year, make sure the weeds are taken care of every year. Maybe the harvest is a little different, but you're still hands-on every year, you know, manicuring that tree. Well, um, I mean this in the best way, but I, I'm curious, like with all these challenges, what keeps you going? What keeps you saying like, this is what I want to be doing? I guess for me, it is finally paying down some debt and finally having some decent financial outlooks, you know, more than once every three years. And it feels like I'm having to admit we've been successful. And by gosh, <laughs> you know, it, it feels good and we just need to keep plugging along and pay off the rest of our debt. For me, at the end of the day, I can say I grew this. You know, there's something tangible that I did that I can give to someone and it will actually nourish them. You know, it's not some widget that can be thrown away. It's actually something that is sustainable and nutritious. You know, not many people get to say that these days. And that's that there's a lot of pride that comes from that. Well, thank you so much to both Mike and April Clayton for being on the show. I mean, there's a lot of talk in ag tech about automation, and that's good. Obviously, you just heard there's a need for that. But let's also make sure we really listen to the stories of people like Mike and April and really understand the problems that we're trying to solve. Because as you heard, they are nuanced, they are complex, and they might be different for a smaller grower versus a larger grower and from one crop to another. I think it's important for me here on this show to do more of these episodes when I can to understand these broader issues through the lens of those who deal with it every single day. So thank you so much to the two of them. Make sure you follow April on Twitter. Again, she's at AppleApril111 and subscribe to her on YouTube where you can find her channel, which is called April the Apple Gal. 
She's also appeared on some other really great podcasts, which I recommend, including Real People, Real Food, The Farm Traveler, and What the Farm. So I'll link to those in the show note. You can hear more from her on all three of those podcasts, and they're just all good ones to listen to generally if you're curious about agriculture. Thanks so much to each and every one of you for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Oh,